Join us for part two of our exploration with Alexander Biner, in which he dives deeper into the role of spirituality in responding to the great crises and questions of our time. He looks at the challenge of redivinizing the world, adding a sacred dimension to our perceptions of each other and the nature and the world, and the challenge of sense-making in our contemporary global informational free-for-all. And he looks at the role of contemplative practices and possibly psychedelics in fostering the greater maturity and wisdom that we will surely need if we are to survive our current times. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. And you're really pointing to some of the contemplative and therapeutic questions of our time. You mentioned you, you began by talking about the, the enormous variety of practices and techniques we have available to us, which is quite novel in human history. So we have this cornucopia of practices. And one of the great questions, uh, there, there are questions both personal and research levels. At the personal level, what combination works best and how do I discover it? And I remember years ago, Ramdas talking about there's a developmental process. He said at first, when you first open into the contemplative world, it's fine to take a smorgasbord approach. I'll try some of this, I'll try some of that. But then after a certain period of time, you may find what really resonates for you. And so you dive deeper. And then perhaps years later, you'll be wanting to experiment with different things, try different things. So, so there is a kind of a wisdom of how to proceed and explore with these. And at the research level, you know, we've got a century of research ahead of us trying to determine what practices work best for what people at what stages of their life and under what circumstances. And, and now specifically, as you point out with the psychedelic renaissance, these curious chemicals are back re-emerging into society and not completely legitimized yet, but it's approaching that way. But traditionally, these the use of these substances was done in a sacred context. Mm. And we didn't have that. When they hit in the 60s, it was like they emerged into a culture utterly unprepared for them with no understanding of how to use them skillfully. And, the, and a group of pioneers did you know, quickly begin to learn. But we're still learning how best to use them. And, yeah. and as to their role in spiritual life, I, some years ago, I did a research study in interviewing people who, who were spiritual teachers who'd also had, who'd had awakenings through their practice, but also had them through psychedelics. And there was a unanimity among them, which was interesting. They all agreed that, yes, the, for the right person, and there's some people who should never use these chemicals, mm -hmm. but for the right person, these can be helpful as long as they're part of a practice. They're yeah. not a path unto themselves, but they can facilitate and catalyze a practice, as yeah. both you and John suggested. So, yeah, this is an emerging area. Yeah, that uh, brings me a bit on to another thing that, that I'm really interested in at the moment, which is, so psychedelics are, are coming, okay, actually, 
to, to start back, you know, you talk about those pioneers who for 30 years, in some cases, now Rick Doblin has been, who, who runs Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, who are very close to getting MDMA legalized as a medicine. He's been working on that since 1986. And I was born in 1987. So, so I'm always just in awe of, you know, just, just the, the sheer willpower and process that so many of the pioneers went through to get us to where we are now. And yet we're facing some something kind of unprecedented now, which is that in some ways it's scarier for the mainstream to accept the psychedelics than to reject them like happened in the 60s. And by that, I mean, we don't, like you said, Roger, psychedelics have traditionally been done with a fairly strong cultural container and a kind of a sense of they're embedded into a much, much deeper, richer process of cultural values and norms and rituals and symbols. And what's happened now is that there isn't really a sense of a cohesive psychedelic culture. So the argument was, and I was really a big proponent of this as well, that psychedelics would best be brought into the mainstream through the biomedical route, because that would be the most palatable and there was a need and there is a need for more effective mental health treatments. But I think what happened in the process is that many of us forgot that because of the nature of psychedelics, if you're going to put them inside a Trojan horse and wheel that Trojan horse up to the gates of mainstream culture, you have to think about the horse as much as you think about what's inside the horse. So you have to think about <laughs> great the metaphor. practices. <laughs> so, and I think now we're realizing as the main proponents and the main steam behind the Renaissance starts to move from the researchers and the activists towards the venture capitalists and the, uh, the pharma companies. Mm -hmm. Many of us are realizing, oh dear. <laughs> so yeah. I've become particularly interested in what it looks like over the next five, 10 years to consciously build a psychedelic metaculture that it will involve everyone. I think it'll involve everyone creating a container for that and then allowing it to emerge because culture sort of emerges through various different forms. But right now we're, we're not there's a real lack of certainty as to what is a psychedelic value? Like what should the values be that are surrounding these substances and the practices around them? And that is at the moment quite unclear. So I'm working on a big new project called the Psychedelic Value Survey, which is using a few different measures of well, values and moral foundations and spiritual belief, and then a lot of qualitative questions to try and see, well, is there anything? Is there anything that links? You know, that's a real open question for me. I'm not sure that there might not be, but try, to try and kind of look at what are the different tribes and value systems at play at the same time. So it'll be very different for someone who feels very connected to say the Santa Daime tradition, right? Uh, which is a kind of ayahuasca church compared to someone who is very involved in the counterculture and likes to go to Burning Man. And yet both of those people might say that psychedelics and psychedelic practices have had a significant impact on their lives. And so, you know, that's my curiosity is, well, mapping that out and then creating a conversation around, okay, how can we start to build the horse around, like, or, or make that Trojan horse sustainable and inclusive enough that it includes indigenous people, for, for so many of whom have brought the wisdom of how to, uh, and in many cases, the substances and medicines themselves and the countercultural voices, and of course, the research and the pharma and the venture capitalist voices, not to, to exclude anyone in particular, but to create a healthy narrative and mimetic ecosystem around them. That's something I'm really hoping that the community as it stands, if you can call it a community, because it's so disparate, but the, the people who really care about psychedelics changing culture rather than being changed by culture, 
we can all start to make some art together in a sense, make start kind of building culture and playing with that. Well, may it be so. And I was struck by a painful analogy as you described the your concern about the way in which this psychedelic renaissance is emerging with surprising speed. And one of the issues you pointed to was the intense interest now, economic interest of pharmaceutical companies and venture capitalists and how can we make a buck out of this? And it just starts to sound very familiar with to the web. And uh, yeah. you know, early optimism and wow, and it's like wow, it, so much of that got captured. It's a painful thought to think of this. What have for perhaps tens of thousands of years been profound spiritual tools and catalysts and openers and entheogens an opening to the God within, to think of those being subverted by economic forces. Yeah, absolutely, and. and yeah, and it's a it's sort of haunted me for the last year or so. I've 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 been covering the well, I actually put a film out called The Rise of Psychedelic Capitalism. That's I've really been covering this and wrestling with it, like properly wrestling with it, because I, I recognize the importance as well of some of that model. Or you know, of and, and there the arguments that a lot of the pharma companies make of like this is the way to get for people to access it. I understand that argument and at the same time well the question is at what cost there's actually some short stories by a, a sci-fi writer called norman spinrad and he they're very very obscure <laughs> I, don't know how many, I know of them because i wrote a my undergraduate dissertation on, on psychedelic literature and and that was one of the only things really out there you know there's not that much there's the famous ones of the huxley's of the world etc and so that they were they were present but he in I think 1971 it might have been he was writing short stories where you know one of them is two men in a lab who are making designer psychedelics for capitalist culture and it's incredibly it was incredibly before his time you know he was already worried about that and I think there was a certainly a, a recognition already early on that that's a possibility and my big concern with that is that like has happened with the commodification of mindfulness and yoga as well. You know, you, you always get deep, authentic practice at the same time as practice that's designed, I think, more to maintain the status quo than it is to help people step back from it. So I think this is a point a woman called Kat Kanoor, who, who set up an ethics pledge called the North Star Pledge or helped set up. She made the point, I think, really well of like, that helped me in my thinking. My thinking was a bit black and white around. It's like, there's going to be everything. There's going to be deep, very well-held processes. And there's going to be probably badly held ones. And there's going to be people trying to cut corners with psychedelic clinics and go from, okay, well, maybe three integration sessions is too much. Well, maybe they could just do one and maybe it could be over Zoom. You know, that kind of race to the bottom, mm -hmm. I think will also, that will probably also happen. But I think that, again, is it was why it's important for people to start the conversation around, well, what do we want these substances to bring beyond just to be mental health treatments? Because even that, you know, they're not magic pills. And it's the therapy and the holding and the container around people that is really seems to be making them get better or have better outcomes with, you know, depression, for example. So it's a really complex thing. And also there's another question of access. Is it going to be only people with enough money? Because it's quite expensive. There's quite, quite a lot of therapist time involved. There's, you know, there's a lot of different factors. Is it only going to be accessible to people who can already now say afford weekly psychotherapy, which is sort of the middle class, upper middle class? That would also be a great tragedy, you know? So, but there's lots of good things happening as well. In, in for example, Oregon, the model that they've developed there, I think is 
really, really exciting where instead of being where it's, it's legalized and the Oregon state kind of health body will be in charge of that and therapists can, you know, in private practice be administering. So that is a very more, much more democratized version of it. So all of these different models are kind of happening at the same time. It's just that we're seeing a kind of turf war as to who's got the epistemic authority to decide what psychedelics are for and who they're for. So it's, it's an interesting time, certainly. <laughs> well, in these mushrooms in Oregon, especially in many places in North America, they pop out of the ground all over the place. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> it's hard to control it too much when these 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 crazy entities just bloop, bloop, there they are, kids, you know. <laughs> yeah, they are prolific. Yeah. Uh, something wonderful about that, isn't it? They're, they're, there's a kind of uh, trickster element to them. Yeah. <laughs> And, and what you said was very helpful for me because I had I realized as you were talking and, and speaking to the plethora of different forms and institutional and approaches that are emerging and doubtless will emerge. And I had been made me realize I had my purism of a, the well, the one more right way is. <laughs> I don't think that's going to survive long. <laughs> yeah, if I feel I've had a lot myself as well. It's the place I kind of go back to, I have some vague sense of how I think it should be and how I'd like it to be. But it is, in a way, very psychedelic. It's, it's multifaceted and it's kind of unpredictable and it's moving lots of different directions. So, yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you seen any churches or religious organizations embracing uh, psychedelics in this new renaissance? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, there are. There are some. There's some smaller ones. And then also there's some much more established ones like the Native American Church and Pejote specifically. And then there's a lot of ayahuasca traditions and Sato Daime being That's the right. biggest one. So they're already kind of, they're established, but an interesting question is which ones emerge. And one of the, one of the arguments that gets less airtime is the one around religious freedom. But part of the issue and something that I'm curious to ask about in the, in the survey is a lot of people, I think, who use psychedelics as tools for spiritual insight or personal growth would consider themselves spiritual but not religious and, and probably have a reluctance to kind of, you know, say that they were religious in any sense or join a, join a kind of religion. And there's a lot of baggage around that, you know, for, for good reason. But I think it does then make it quite difficult in the current legal system and the current cultural system to say, this is for religious use. I haven't seen much success in people claiming religious use. Some have been successful, but... I think the state looks at it and they're like, well, no, you're just 10 people who meet regularly. It's not a religion, is it? And so that, that, that's an interesting kind of tension present because I think religious use is incredibly important because what it does is, A, because I think that that's the use I connect to the most. And I think it's very healthy to have psychotherapeutic and, and therapeutic use alongside religious use because, and the big question for me is, how can we create a healthy ecosystem where if someone wants to have an experience to alleviate their suffering, say, there's a lot of power questions at play because right now it would be a psychiatrist who would kind of bring them into a particular model of, okay, well, this is, this is how you're, we're going to treat you. But there's also an equal right to say that they could go to their rabbi and say, or their priest or whoever it might be and go, and they might have a completely different take on it. They'd be like, look, this is a spiritual malady. They need to, maybe they need to connect with God more deeply. Maybe they need to come into right relationship with themselves or, you know, and so there's all these different approaches. And this is something I'm fascinated by, like who decides, who decides what sickness is, who's sick, what kind of treatment they should get. It's going to take a, I think it'll take a while to work out. <laughs> it's going to be a big conversation. <laughs> I think we can agree on that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, uh, certainly in my life, it's been going on my lifetime, so I don't expect it to, <laughs> to end within my <laughs> lifetime. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much we could, well, I, there's a topic I'd love to go back to, but before I nudge us there, let me ask if there's anything else around this fascinating topic you'd like to, to speak to. No, no, I'm good. I think I think I've, yeah, I think I've covered what, what, what's, feel salient to me so yeah yeah okay great well one of the topics you you mentioned i mean there have been so many <laughs> and uh, we won't get through them all in this conversation but we can we can have fun trying <laughs> one of the interfaces you mentioned and which you're exploring and have been observing is the this interface between the contemplative and the cultural the spiritual and the political and you talked about that, and I, I'm intrigued by the idea of how we how we use this as as part of our practice. And we spoke about you know the going in in order to go out more effectively out and going out to go deeper in. But but it seems to me that there is a practice for this, and it's the Hindu practice. There are four major yogas, but one of them is is karma yoga, the yoga of using one's work and action in the world as one's mm. practice. And it seems that this may be an ideal approach for us to at least be aware of as we engage with the world. And the traditional elements of karma yoga, just laid out briefly, were to that one, well, before beginning any anything, one set an intention for the highest good of all. Second, one offered the activity to traditionally God, but it can be to any larger larger, something larger than any transpersonal ideal. Third thing, one did one's activity in the world, one's action, one's work, one's politics as, as impeccably as you possibly could. And the fourth step was the real kicker, which makes it into such a knife-edge practice. One does one's work as impeccably as possible while simultaneously attempting to let go any egoic attachment to the outcome. And it's <laughs> that last step which rips away the attachment, the ego, egocentricity about how am I doing, how's this look, it's going to turn out the way I want, et cetera, et cetera, and turns it actually into a cathartic process of releasing any egoic involvement and attachment and aversion and pride, et cetera. And it seems to me that of all the practices we have, that's the one that seems most appropriate to this work, to the spiritual social activism, and to the issues of our time where most of us aren't you know, monastics. Most of us are trying to practice and bring our practice into the world. And this is the one which seems like it can enable it, our practice to be a full-time process, which all the traditions emphasize the importance of continuity. So here's a way in which our practice can be continuous and we can live and love with our families and, and help and heal and contribute in whatever ways we can. So love to have your comments. Yeah. I mean, I feel quite inspired by that because of the, especially the last bit, you know, that the, the, the kind of letting go, the, the, the beauty in that. And you know, what strikes me as we haven't talked so much about the, the concept of this sort of meaning crisis or this, this kind of lack of a, co a sense of coherence in culture, which I think is one of the, the big things that we're trying to make sense of now, because the second, I think it was the second step of committing to something higher than ourselves. We don't have as much of a cultural framework for doing that as we did say when, say, when Christianity was a bigger force in this part of the world, 
or you know i i remember listening to the ranel fines the explorer talking one time about the absolute necessity to have something higher than yourself when you're out exploring in the wilderness and his was the memory of his father and his grandfather who had both been explorers so that's kind of ancestral one which is very powerful as well but i think there's a real need culturally for a sense of commitment to something higher we're we're in this we're, i think we're in this space where and you know ken wilber speaks to this really well you know going through modernism to postmodernism and in modernism you know we had it was emerging after say the like the kind of horrors of the first world war where we did have a big meta narrative that it was like yeah it's you can die for your country like that's something that is a higher we're living for and serving for it's higher than us and then that became something that we didn't you know for good reason that we started becoming suspicious of and then with the decline of organized religion we're in this kind of as nietzsche said kind of the, the death of god we're in this kind of void in a sense and then we start making religion out of anything we can find and that that's a that's a dangerous place to be i think because what i think the wisdom traditions are one of the reasons they're so important is that this sense of what you surrender to like what you surrender to feels to me very very important because yes. if i'm surrendering like yeah and it has to be it has to be divine i think it has to be big enough to contain everything rather than surrendering to say an ideology that sense of the divine and like the role of the the sacred and the divine in culture for me that's the thing that's missing right now is is a sense of of divinity and i think once we have that that ability to surrender that kind of first step everything kind of falls into place for me in that the whole mm -hmm. process that whole yoga you were describing everything falls into place when we can surrender to something higher it's not that that thing has gone away because i think it's ever present and i think a lot of people are doing that in in different traditions and different in our, in our own lives and our relationships with the divine so i don't think it's like it's not there it's just that it's not culturally something that we have a space for the churches are kind of going empty mm -hmm. and they're being converted into in, in one case in dublin a nightclub <laughs> which is, you know it's like there's <laughs> a big church that's now a nightclub and I'm not suggesting necessarily like a kind of Christian revival by any means. I'm suggesting like a revival of the place it, it had in in culture and what that looks like. Who knows? I've I've argued that it'll that we're right now seeing a nascent expression of that. I've called it the age of breach, where we have these sort of proto religions forming online, and they're very chaotic and they're very a lot of them very fear based, like QAnon, and and they you know people are getting into these very mythic ways of seeing the world and, and and then is breaching out into the real world like in the capital riots for example or GameStop you know the in the capital riots the the look of perplexed wonder on the faces of some of the people is almost like they've woken up from a dream and they're like oh I've gone from the internet and this kind of whipped up frenzy into standing in the seat of democracy and they were not they're surprised they <laughs> can't quite believe they're there and then the GameStop phenomena that happened where lots of just regular people were taking on Wall Street with betting on a completely useless stock a few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was that was hilarious and, and amazing and a real Robin Hood kind of moment, which I think was very satisfying. But looking like spending a bit of time on Reddit and the threads, there was something also a little bit magical going on. There was a sense of real connectedness that people had and a sense of everyone pushing towards something higher, which was actually a sense of justice at the end of the day. It was mm. a sense of like all this pent up anger after the financial crash and, and, and just the, the general corruption, the financial system. There was almost a transcendent moment and it breached into mainstream awareness and then kind of fizzled out. And I think we'll keep seeing more and more of those breaches. And I have a suspicion that the only way or the best way that we have to come into a sense of coherence with one another 
in the incredibly complex, globalized, international world we live in is some sense of a, a kind of meta religion that is big enough to encapsulate all of that. Now, I think it'll be very strange and weirder than we can imagine. And I have no idea, you know, maybe it's 50 years from now, who knows, maybe it never happens. But I, like that's something I'm fascinated by. I, I'm fascinated by that mm-hmm. potential. And I, find, I feel actually a great amount of hope in it because I think one of our big problems right now is coordination is something that Daniel Schmachtenberger, who we've had on the channel a lot, speaks to a lot. It's like, we cannot, co- well, firstly, we can't make sense together. First, we can't even agree on what's true or not. That's a big problem. And that's a huge coordination issue. And then even just, we saw it during the pandemic, like, I mean, we kind of muddled our way through, but like global coordination is very choppy, even within countries, coordination between all the different complex elements and supply chains and government and school, like sort of, you know, it's not nothing. It kind of works, but we don't really have a, a sense of coordination around big problems like climate change, for example. Like, I mean, it, somewhat, but it could be much better. And so some meta narrative or some, some higher purpose or transpersonal object or transpersonal sense of meaning, I think is really important. And I think that's the, uh, as John Ravake as well argues like that, that's, I think what's missing, like the main thing that's missing. And my hope is that at some point it comes back in some form. Yeah, beautifully said. And this does speak so much. One of the malaises of our time, the desacralization of life and the lack of a space for the transcendent. Think of the words of Abraham Maslow, one of the famous psychologists of the 20th century, who said, without the transcendent, we become sick and nihilistic. And mm. we can see that a lot. And Maslow spoke to, coined, Maslow was so creative, but he spoke, he recognized that there are not only the ordinary motives we recognize, there are meta motives, higher motives, self-actualization. And finally, towards the end of his life, he, he suggested self-transcendence was a crucial motive. And he also pointed out that just as there are pathologies when we don't get some of our basic needs met, when we don't get enough food, we get we starve, when we don't, et cetera, et cetera. But he said there are metapathologies. And when we don't recognize and honor those subtle callings for to actualize our potentials, to be what we can, and to realize, recognize something larger than ourselves, then we suffer from metapathologies. And he pointed to metapathologies like cynicism and nihilism and malaise and a sense of just ennui, all of which he pointed out our culture doesn't recognize. And so they often misdiagnosed as, you know, as something else. They're not recognized as these symptoms of the lack of something larger to offer our lives to. And I think you, so I really appreciate your pointing to the need for a bringing the transcendent back into our culture in, in multiple ways. And you've spoken to it in a variety of ways, the psychedelics, the quest, the religions, etc. But it just feels so important and, and not much spoken about. Yeah, that's th- thank you for that, bringing the metapathologies. In, I've, I've never heard of that, Maslow's work on that. That feels, in, I mean, incredibly insightful That because he was absolutely right. It seems like you're, like you're pointing to, like it really... That is the, the swing between nihilism and narcissism, I think, as, as a lot of people have pointed out, we're going through. You know, I noticed that there's a strange, like, well, there's a kind of necessity to let go of control in that as well, I think, culturally, because I think it will emerge in some sense. It's, it's not like, I don't, I'm not sure, this is my guess, is that we're in a different mode of history where 
Previously, we had very powerful, enlightened, tapped in figures like Christ or Buddha who would kind of hold that space and be like, you know, hark, <laughs> I've, I've tapped in. And then people would follow that because there were fewer, you know, this is my guess. I'm really just, uh, I could be wrong about this, but I think if they were to come along now, they'd be on Twitter and everyone would be like, shut up. <laughs> it's just, it's such a multipolar world of, of many interlapping narratives that I think it's almost like a much more of the emergence of a complex system, you know? So, so uh, somehow this kind of transcendent meta value might emerge from the interactions we're all having. And I have a sense that it will emerge first on the internet and we won't know what it is probably until, you know, like, like QAnon. I mean, just the, the, the level of, of traction that got and how kind of the divorce from reality it was, I can imagine something hopefully more connected to, to reality and to essence coming out. And so I almost feel myself sort of watching and waiting. <laughs> hopefully I might be doing it for 50 years. <laughs> God knows what the internet will look like. Uh, at that point. But I, yeah, I, I feel myself kind of very curious, very curious as to the kind of bubblings of the, the collective unconscious. Yeah. Well, there's also a saying in uh, countercultural Judaism that there is no Messiah and you're it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so it may be up to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can't yeah. count on another Jesus or Buddha. Uh, you know, if you're a fundamentalist, you can. But other than that, it's maybe up to us, just us yeah. nerds to, or schlepping, schleps. <laughs> <laughs> to do what we can. Yeah. You, know, you alluded to something, Ali, which is, seems incredibly important, which you and Rebel Wisdom have given a lot of time to, which I've learned from a great deal. That is your discussions around the what you call the crisis of meaning or sense-making. And that does seem, as Daniel Schmachtenberger would say, fundamental, because if we can't come mm. to some consensus about the very nature of life and reality, and even prior to that, how we discern that, then we're in deep trouble. And I'd love to have you speak to that. Yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the, the naughtiest problems that, that we have. And I think, I actually think sort of upstream from that is the problem of the meaning crisis, first, first and foremost, where it doesn't give us a foundation with which to actually find truth together or agree on truth together, at least. But there's... There's so many different elements to it. And one of them is, is just a very practical one of the information landscape, as Schmachtenberger calls it, being so, A, complete overwhelm for all of us. There's just far too much information coming towards us at any given time. And so to try and make, even just the practicalities of making sense of that, I think, are very difficult. And I, I, I again, I think meditation is a really good effective tool for that because it allows us to observe without reacting. And I think being able to observe without reacting is really an essential skill online. And so there's basic capacities like that. And, you know, a lot of people are doing a really great work in looking at cognitive bias. And, you know, we, we had a Rebel Wisdom event over the weekend and there was a guy, Narayan Wong, who does a lot of work in the rationalist community. And they're, they're, as, as the name suggests, they're very into kind of reason. It's a very kind of almost stoic style approach, but they, you know, they have a, even just a very simple method of, of looking at truth claims and certainties that we have. How certain are we about something? I'm putting a percentage to it. And immediately that already is quite useful. It's like, well, okay, how certain am I that the earth is round? Well, I'm probably 99.9% .9 certain to say, well, how, how certain am I of the, you know, some, something else a bit more complex? So, oh, 60, 70%. And it's actually, I find it very easy to find a percentage, you know, it just kind of goes to it. So there's little things like that, that can kind of bring us out of it. But I think one of the main things that we've looked at a lot in Rebel Wisdom is, 
is this understanding that making sense isn't something we just do through thought. In fact, that's probably just, the, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's really an embodied process where we have to be deeply, we're doing it with the whole person and we have to be deeply attuned to as many aspects of ourselves as possible, our emotional reality, our own history and cognitive biases and our own shadows. We've talked a lot about the, the necessity of, of looking at the shadow so that we can really do our best to actually get away from certainty. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a great phrase that I learned from David Trelevin, who's a, a meditation teacher, which is complexity tolerance. You know, our, our ability to tolerate it speaks to what you were speaking to, Roger, earlier, the kind of perspectival fluidity, you know, and this also the complexity tolerance is a kind of resilience of not knowing, resilience in not knowing and, and the ability to be okay with not being certain, which is something that I think is, is often we're not really taught in school, but it feels like the, the necessary first step to, to be making sense. And then lastly, it's that we can't, I think something we've learned is that we can't just make sense alone. We really have to be making sense with each other. And that's where the work of a lot of the relating practices and the inquiry and the dialogue practices come in, because that's a whole other realm of complexity of, wow, okay, now I have to bring in someone else's worldview and my own and hold simultaneously my own emotional reality and theirs and know where am I projecting, where are they may be overstepping. And it's actually that they've kind of taken that premise too far. And, you know, we do it a lot of naturally, but all of these things factor into it. So I guess it's a kind of, it's not a new thing. It's something I guess we've been doing forever as human beings. It's just, we're facing new levels of challenge with it. And I think we, just, we also need to be experimenting with what practices help us do it. And you're pointing to some, some very important principles there, Ali. First, you're acknowledging, for example, the complexity challenge that we do face new levels of complexity, far beyond what we what we were traditionally exposed to. And what you didn't mention there, but uh, I'm sure you're very aware of, is that the capacity for handling levels of complexity is a developmental process. And there are significant maps now. So we're talking about how we can foster maturity in a way. You know, there's so much we could talk about here, Ali, and I personally would love to. So I, I want to extract a promise from you to have another conversation another time. But uh, I would love to. Yeah, I really would. I feel like we only scratched the surface and there was a lot of I wanted to ask both of you as well. So I'm, I'm very open to that. Like, yeah, guaranteed. Would you like just to say, just take as long as you have or want to, we've talked about a lot of the challenges we face at this time, but what gives you hope? Hmm. What a lovely question. I think what gives me hope is, yeah, what comes for me is this, this line that Terence McKenna used to say, and I'm sure many other people have said it in different ways, but that humanity is at its best when it's under pressure. Doshin Roshi, who we've had on Rebel Wizard a few times, he, I think his, his teacher used to say, when do we change? When we have to. And I think that's <laughs> certainly been my experience in life. You know, I think there is a kind of, I think there's a really deep truth to that. And so I think we are under pressure and we are facing multiple complex challenges all at the same time. But what really gives me hope is that I think we step into a new version of ourselves and a new version of our kind of collective selves when we're faced with that kind of pressure. So that's, that's kind of what gives me hope. Uh, wonderful. 
Well, it's just been a, a sheer delight and a, st a stimulus that feels like there have been light bulbs going off all over the places. You've, you've said you've come up with various novel ideas and they've sparked, us, sparked ideas in me. And, and so I'm very grateful. And I, I just want to acknowledge what a contribution you've made. You said only 34. God, what did I? You've done so much and contributed so much and touched so many people. I just, just want to acknowledge you and thank you for all you're doing. And for those people who'd like to have more of Ali, he, of course, Rebel Wisdom is, is one of his major platforms, and I recommend his articles on Medium. I don't know your website off heart, but I will will find it and point, point our listeners to it. <laughs> Ali, thank, thank, you. You, thank you so much for being available and thank doing this dialogue. Yeah, and thank you both, too. And then also, like, you know... I, I owe much of my insight to to integral theory and to your work as well, Roger. And yeah, I really appreciate that the opportunity to chat. I really would like to do it again because I think there's so much more we could talk about. Great. So thank you so much and see you again soon. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.